Several months ago, I read a book by a Christian pastor, and the book is entitled, Why America Hates Biblical Christianity. Here it is. And I want to read a little bit from the introduction of that book. The author says, for the most part, America is now a post-Christian nation. Its culture now embraces the beliefs of postmodernism, where people no longer believe in absolute or moral truth, and instead become skeptical in their beliefs, subjective in their values, and consider truth to be something relative. As a result, all viewpoints, no matter how absurd and contradictory, must be considered equally valid, unless, of course, they derive their authority from the Bible. Like never before in American history, Christians are witnessing biblical values being replaced by laws that impose a godless, immoral, oppressive social agenda on their country. Laws that now even suppress religious freedoms guaranteed in the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights. The practical implications of these rulings, combined with the overall disdain political and religious liberal activists have for conservative values, have ignited an epic cultural war that is now raging out of control. Civility in public discourse is gone. Rage has replaced reason. Facts mean nothing. Evil is called good and good is called evil. Anarchists are destroying cities. Police are being attacked and killed along with many innocent people. Millions of citizens are bewildered, angry, and afraid. It is little wonder that gun and ammunition manufacturers cannot keep up with the demand as citizens arm themselves. To be sure, America is now in an ideological civil war that threatens the very survival of the nation. Well, brothers and sisters, in light of that, it has seemed very timely that we pursue this study, which we've been doing, the Christian's responsibility to government. Our launch point for this brief series has been our Lord's words in Mark 12, 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so regarding the Christian's responsibility to civil government, we have seen, first of all, a definition of government. And under that, we noted that government is divine in origin. It is delegated in authority, and it is uh, defined in sphere or scope. Mainly, the role of government is to secure peace and security in society, to punish evildoers, and to promote uh, those who do good and to reward them. As to our duty to government, we saw that our overriding duty is to submit. Hupotasso, put yourself under the authority of the governing authorities. As well, we have a duty, 1 Timothy 2, to pray for governing authorities. As we pursue the matter of disobedience to government authorities, we have seen several occasions when a Christian either must or may obey civil government disobeying when government commands what God forbids, disobeying when government forbids what God commands, and last week, disobeying when government oversteps its bounds. Remember sphere sovereignty? The family has its sphere, the state has its sphere, the the church has its sphere, and each authority must stay within its bounds of delegated authority. Well, we continue this morning with three additional occasions when God calls his people either to disobey or in some way defy and confront human governmental authorities. And the next is this, disobeying government when authorities contradict 
one another. Disobeying government when authorities contradict one another. As we know, there are different levels of governmental authority, aren't there? In our society, we have the federal government, we have state government, we have county government, we have local government. There is the military, which exercises a certain amount of authority. There are police forces, and they exist at a state, county, and local level. What is the Christian to do when uh, a couple of these levels of authority disagree with each other? What is our duty in that case? Well, this brings us into the realm of what has come to be called historically the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. And it reads like this, follow closely. When the superior or higher civil authority makes unjust or immoral laws or decrees, the lesser or lower ranking civil authority has both a right and duty to refuse obedience to that superior authority or even to actively resist the superior authority. You follow that? Different levels of authority, they're disagreeing. And if the higher authority legislate something that's wrong, sinful, immoral, the lower authority has a right and duty to disobey that higher authority. Now, according to my reading, the first time that this was put in a doctrinal format was in the case of the magistrates in Magdeburg, Germany. These, this was the, the time of Martin Luther and Emperor Charles V, who had tried Luther at the Diet of Worms, he wanted everybody to submit to the Roman Catholic Church. And so he instituted or imposed the Augsburg Interim in 1548, an attempt to force Protestants under the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. But there was one city in all of Germany that defied what he was doing as political and religious tyranny, and that was the city of Magdeburg. And the pastors of that city framed a statement which came to be called the Magdeburg Confession. And the statement basically set forth the fact that we're not Catholic. We don't want to be Catholic. We're committed to the doctrines of Martin Luther. They also assured the emperor that, that we are your best citizens. We want to submit to your authority, emperor, and we're only constrained to take this stand because of our love for Christ and our love for his word. Part of their statement reads like this. The magistrate is an ordinance of God for the honor to good works and a terror to evil works. Romans 13. Therefore, when the ordinance, therefore, when he begins, that is, the, um, the government, the magistrate begins to be a terror to good works and honor to evil, there is no longer in him, because he does thus, the ordinance of God, but the ordinance of the devil. And he who resists such works does not resist the ordinance of God, but the ordinance of the devil. As a result of the stand they took, the emperor and his forces surrounded the city of Magdeburg in 1550 and put it under siege for about a year. As a result, 4,000 of the forces of the emperor were killed, and 468 citizens of the city of Magdeburg died. But the result of it was the Peace of Augsburg, which gave each region freedom to practice the religion of its choice. So you didn't have to be Catholic. If you were in a Protestant region, a Lutheran region, you could practice the Lutheran faith, a Reformed region, you could practice the Reformed faith. And this Magdeburg Confession, as it came to be called, had a profound effect on certain reformers, such as John Knox and Theodore Beza. 
Connected with this is the idea of interposition, where a lower magistrate, a lower authority, interposes itself, puts itself in between the higher tyrannical authority and its would-be victims. They stand in the gap between the higher authority that is instituting something immoral, something wrong, to protect the citizenry, the idea of interposition. And as you recall, this was done in the case of Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the reformer, went to the Diet of Worms in 1517, where he was tried, and he was, after that, considered to be a heretic. And his life was in danger under the emperor Charles V. And as Luther was returning to his home from the Diet of Worms, Luther's own prince, Prince Frederick III of Saxony, arranged for Luther to be kidnapped by friendly forces. And they took him and, and shuttled him off to the, to the Wartburg Castle, where he began to translate the Bible into the common German language. And so Frederick III protected his monk against the authority of the higher authority of the king. He interposed himself to protect Luther. Now, whether he did it because he really believed the doctrines that Luther was putting forth, or whether it was just a matter of national pride, you know, Luther's our German monk and I'm going to defend him. Whatever the case, that lower magistrate interposed himself to protect Luther against the emperor. Apparently, Ulrich Zwingli was protected by the Zurich City Council, and John Calvin was protected by the Geneva City Council against higher authorities. So those are some things that were done in history. But history is descriptive, not prescriptive. You know what I mean by that? What happens in history doesn't tell us what we ought to do. It just tells us what happened. The Bible is prescriptive. The Bible tells us what we ought to do. So we ask ourselves, is this doctrine of the lesser magistrate something that is taught in the Bible? And first, I want to begin by giving you a few examples where a lower authority is disobeyed by appeal to a higher authority. A higher authority and a lower authority are in conflict. And here are some examples where the lower authority is to be disobeyed by appeal to a higher authority. And you need not turn to these passages because I'm going to go fairly quickly. And for time's sake, I, I'm not going to read all that I would like to read, but I will paraphrase much of this so you get the idea. But in the book of Esther, we read that this man, Haman, uh, was advanced and established in his authority over all the princes who were with him. In the kingdom of King Ahasuerus, Haman was promoted. He was in a position of authority. Haman was an arrogant man who wanted people to bow down to him. A certain Jew by the name of Mordecai refused to do that because he was a worshiper of the true God. And that incensed Haman. And Haman, in his hatred for the Jews, was able to convince the king to deal with the Jews and even to exterminate them. And the king gave him permission to do whatever he would with the Jews. And so Haman had put out a decree that the Jews were to be exterminated. Esther was a beautiful young woman. She became part of the king's harem. She was a Jewess, a God-fearing woman. And what she does is she goes and arranges a dinner and appeals to the king and expresses her concern for her own Jewish people. As a result of that, the king is incensed with what Haman had planned. 
Haman ends up being hung on the gallows, which he had intended for another, namely Mordecai. And so here was an example where a lower authority, Haman, was disobeyed because of the higher authority, the king. Jeremiah 38 is another occasion. And again, for time's sake, I I will just paraphrase some of it. But Jeremiah has been thrown into prison. As you know, Jeremiah had a gloomy but true message. The nation was under judgment. They were going to be taken into Babylonian captivity. That was Jeremiah's message, and it was a true message. Now, the people didn't want to hear that. They wanted to hear good news. And false prophets typically say peace, peace, when there is no peace, right? False prophets and false teachers like to tickle the ears of people. They like to tell them what they want to hear. Jeremiah was a true prophet, and he was telling the people the truth from God. And the truth was not a happy truth. It was that they were headed for judgment. And um, as a result of that, the um, officials persuade the king to put him in prison. And Jeremiah is actually put in a cistern where he likely would have died. But then we have this lesser magistrate by the name of Ebed-Melech, which means servant of the king, and he intercedes for Jeremiah, and he appeals to the authority of the king on Jeremiah's behalf. And so reading Jeremiah 38, beginning at verse 7, we read this. But Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch, while he was in the king's palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. Now the king was sitting in the gate of Benjamin. And Ebed-Melech went out from the king's palace and spoke to the king, saying, My lord the king, these men have acted wickedly in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the cistern. And he will die right where he is because of the famine, for there is no more bread in the city." Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Take thirty men from here under your authority and bring up Jeremiah the prophet from the cistern before he dies. And he does. So this lower magistrate, Ebed-Melech, appeals to the king, uh, contrary to the officials who had put him in the cistern, and rescues Jeremiah from the cistern. Now, had the king not agreed to do that, would Ebed-Melech on his own had rescued Jeremiah? We don't know. But here's a case where the lower authority was disobeyed in favor of the higher authority. The Apostle Paul overrides the decision of a lower magistrate and appeals to a higher authority in Acts chapter 16. In Acts 16, Paul has been arrested because he's upset the city by preaching the gospel, and he had been beaten by the Romans. And we read in Acts 16, beginning at verse 35. Now, when day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen, saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison, and now they're sending us away secretly? No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. You see, it was illegal to beat a Roman citizen. They didn't know that Paul was a Roman citizen. And so the magistrate said, hey, just get him out of here. We want to stay out of trouble. And Paul said, no way. You're going to come down here in person. 
And Paul, it seems, wanted to put a scare into the hearts of the authorities so that the Christians there in Philippi, that infant church, might be protected. Paul was, as it were, interposing himself with the authorities to protect the people. But there's a case where he did not obey the lower magistrate, but appealed to a higher authority, namely his own citizenship. He does that on another occasion, his own Roman citizenship. In Romans, or rather, uh, Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 25. But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, who are you about, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. So here's the lower magistrate. He wants to put Paul in chains. He wants to beat him. And Paul appeals to the higher authority of his Roman citizenship, and he is released. In Acts chapter 23, one chapter later, Jewish authorities arrest the apostle Paul for preaching the gospel. Forty Jews are planning, laying in wait, fasting with a view to killing Paul, not committing not to eat until they put Paul to death. Well, in God's providence, Paul's nephew catches wind of it. He reports it to Paul. Paul says, go to the Roman commander. The nephew goes to the Roman commander, and the Roman commander overrides the authority of the Jews and protects the apostle Paul. Later on, Paul actually says, I appeal to Caesar. He appeals to a higher authority, even over the Roman government. So here's a case where you have a a lesser magistrate in conflict with the, the higher authority, and the lesser authority is overridden in appeal to the higher authority. But what about a lesser authority disobeying a higher authority? That seems to be the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, where the lower-ranking authority goes against the authority of the the higher-ranking position. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 14, we have a case where Saul is not in a good state spiritually. He has disobeyed the Lord. The Lord has withdrawn from him. They're fighting the Philistines. And in this case, Jonathan, Saul's son, is responsible for this victory over the Philistines. But in the midst of the battle, Saul, consumed with his own ego and pride and reputation, makes this decree. 1 Samuel 14, 24. Now, the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies, so none of the people tasted food. You see his egoism? It's all about his personal vengeance. He's not fighting the, the, the warfare of God. He's about his personal reputation. I need to avenge myself on my enemies. And so the people are weary from fighting, but he puts them under this decree. You may not eat anything until this victory is over. Well, Jonathan, his son, doesn't get the memo. Jonathan is responsible for the victory. And in his hunger, he sees some honey. He dips his rod in the honey and he tastes it. He violates the decree of his father. And then we pick up in verse 43. Saul has sought the Lord 
and he's not getting any answer from the Lord. And so what we find is this. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I must die. Saul said, may God do this to me and more also, for you surely shall die, Jonathan. That's his own son. But listen to what follows. But the people said to Saul, must Jonathan die, who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. And so here is the authority, the king saying he's got to die on the terms of the decree I made. The people interpose themselves and they say, no way is Jonathan going to die. And they protected Jonathan. A few chapters later in 1 Timothy, 1 Samuel rather, 22, 17, again, Saul in his raging jealousy toward David and his pursuit of David, he has the king of Nob, whom he believes is in collusion with David. And at one point, Saul says in 1 Samuel twenty-two seventeen, Saul gives an order to his soldiers. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death because their hand also is with David, and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. There's an occasion where these soldiers who had authority were unwilling to carry out the command of the king and kill these 80 priests of Nob, which would have been wrong to do, and they defied his authority. In Jeremiah chapter 26, and I don't have too many of these examples, but in Jeremiah 26, Jeremiah again is giving a gloomy message. The people are slated for judgment. And the priests and the prophets did not like that message, and so they condemn him to die. But listen to Jeremiah 26, beginning at verse 10. When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and sat in the entrance of the new gate of the Lord's house. Then the priests and the prophets spoke to the officials and to all the people saying, a death sentence for this man, for he has prophesied against this city as you have heard in your hearing. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and to all the people saying, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city, all the words that you have heard. Now, therefore, amend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will change his mind about the misfortune which he has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I am in your hands. Do with me as is good and right in your sight. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood on yourselves and on this city and on its inhabitants. For truly the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and to the prophets, no death sentence for this man, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. The priests and the prophets were higher authority. The officials said, and they said, he must die the officials, the lower-ranking authority said, no way is he going to die. And so the lower magistrate resists the mandate of the higher authority. Keep in mind that with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, they were not just citizens, they were in positions of authority. And so it was as, 
as lower magistrates that they disobeyed the king when the king said, you need to bow down and worship the statue of me. So, brothers and sisters, here's another occasion when a government authority may be disobeyed when there's a conflict between the command of a higher authority and a lower authority. And Dr. Nate Busnitz from Master Seminary makes this statement. Believers often find themselves under multiple layers or levels of governing authority. In such situations, they can appeal to or seek protection from the governing authority that is most sympathetic to their cause. And that assumes that their cause is a righteous cause, that their cause is God's cause. So I think we have a present example going on right now in our society. I haven't followed it in great detail, but Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida is refusing to obey some of the mandates coming down from the federal government. He's exercising his state authority in contradiction to the federal authority. According to this council, we would obey the authority that is most sympathetic to our cause, assuming that cause is God's cause, and the higher authority is... is um, foisting something upon us which is immoral or contrary to the will of God. One of the lowest-ranking civil authorities is the police, but they have real authority, and this applies to them. And I believe it's so. I wanted to get details from my son, but I, I wasn't able to get to him in time. But I believe that when the mayor of Los Angeles was putting all these strictures on Grace Community Church there, that the local police refused to carry them out. And... Grace Community Church has honored the police force. They've had services where they've honored them. They have a good relationship with the Los Angeles police. And the local police said, no way are we carrying out that order of the mayor because it's wrong. And so there's a place for a lower authority to disobey a higher authority. There are instances of that in the Bible. Well, the next two categories are not so much occasions of direct disobedience, but insubordination in other ways. The next is this, rebuking disobedient government authorities. We've seen that these are occasions for disobeying the authorities. When government authorities command what God forbids, you must disobey. When government forbids what God commands, you must disobey. When government authorities overstep their God-given boundaries, they get out of their sphere. That's an occasion for possible disobedience. And when government authorities conflict, you may disobey one authority and follow the authority that is most in line with your cause and convictions. Yet here's another responsibility to human government. It is to rebuke them when they do evil. And friends, this is for their good, because all human authorities are delegated and derived from God, and every human authority will someday give account to God. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, 9, speaking to masters who have servants or slaves, he says, masters, do the same things to them. Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. And there's no partiality with him. He's saying to masters, you better be careful about how you treat your servants because you have a master to whom you will give account someday. Hebrews 13, 17 says of pastoral authority, obey your leaders, submit to them. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. 
I live with this consciousness. I want to live with this consciousness every day of my life that someday I'm going to give account to the Lord Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, for how I have shepherded not my sheep, but his sheep. That means I better treat you right. I better speak to you as Christ would speak to you. I better deal with you as Christ would deal with you because I'm going to answer to Jesus, the chief shepherd, because I'm a human authority, but I'm under his authority. And so when we commend to authorities their duty, when we rebuke them for failing to fulfill their duties, it's a loving thing. We're doing them good to remind them their authority comes from God. They're to carry out their stewardship in a way that pleases God. And someday they're going to give account to God for the way that they have either used or abused the authority that was given to them. That's why James says in James 3.1, we read it a week ago, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, because those who teach will receive a stricter judgment. If I'm wrong for myself, that's one thing. But if I teach others error, then I'm not only wrong for myself, but I'm wrong for many others. And that warrants a stricter judgment. And so it is a very loving thing to commend to any human authority, even governmental authorities, their duty and to rebuke them when they are not obeying God in exercising their authority. Do we see this in the Bible? We certainly saw it with Jesus, right? Over and over again, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. They have authority over people, and they're misusing it. They're abusing the sheep. And Jesus pronounces woes upon these religious authorities. We see it with the prophet Nathan, with David. Nathan didn't fear the king, but when David had sinned and kept it hidden for nine months... Nathan tells him that parable about the sheep and the one ewe lamb. And David gets the point, and then he points his bony prophetic finger in his face and says, you are the man. David, you're the one. You're guilty. He indicted David in love. And that brought David to repentance. Elijah with King Ahab. Elijah has a, an audience with King Ahab, that wicked king whose wife was Jezebel. And Ahab calls him, you troubler in Israel. And Ahab turns around and says, no, it's you who have troubled Israel by worshiping the Baals. You're the real troubler in Israel, not I. John the Baptist, as we studied in Mark, called out Herod because he had illicitly his brother's wife. He calls him out for that incest and that adultery. And as a result, he lost his life. As followers of Christ, brothers and sisters, the true light of the world, we are called to be salt and light in society. Salt in meat retards its corruption and light. We're, we're to, by being salt, retard the spread of evil. And by being light, we're to spread the light of truth. And one way we can do this is by speaking to the powers that be and calling them out when they are against God's word. When they come to punish evil and and as long as they're punishing evil and promoting good, that's, that's, that's okay, as God defines good and evil. But if they get that reversed and they start to punish the good and reward the evil, our job as God's people to be a prophetic voice of sorts and to call them out for their own good. It's loving to do so. It's gracious to do so. 
because they're going to face God in the judgment someday. So that's another area where we conflict with government, not by directly disobeying, but by rebuking disobedient government authorities. And then there's one more, disobeying by fleeing. When authorities would track down and arrest God's people for their obedience to him, it's legitimate to defy arrest and capture by fleeing. Jesus did this. John 8, 59 says, Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. David fled from King Saul. Was he right to do that? Well, on at least one occasion, the godly Samuel helped him in his fleeing from Saul. It would have been wrong for David to just present himself to the the wicked, jealously enraged Saul who would have killed him. It was right for David to flee from Saul. We're told of Elbadiah in 1 Kings 18, 3 and 4, that he hid the prophets of the Lord, motivated by the fear of the Lord. He protected those prophets. Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt by the direction of an angel and fulfillment of prophecy to preserve the, the life of the Lord Jesus. That was right to do. And remember Saul, after he was converted, He escaped from Damascus. How? They lowered him in a big fish basket to get away from the persecutors. It's not wrong to flee. It's not wrong to hide. Fleeing from persecutors in defiance of government authority is sanctioned by God, and it's been done many times in history. Martin Luther, they intercepted him and rescued him, brought him into the castle to protect him from persecutors who would have killed him. The Scottish covenanters often would flee their pursuers. So these are six occasions when it is biblically permissible to either disobey or in other ways not comply with governing authorities in the name of being obedient to and faithful to our God. And as I conclude this section, I have another section briefly, but As I conclude this section on the occasions for Christians disobeying governmental authorities, I want to give some perspective when it comes to seeking to influence our government and our culture. And you can test this by the word of God. But I believe there are two ditches that we need to avoid in our overall perspective in dealing with our culture and government authorities. On the one hand, I find that there are Christians who are too preoccupied with trying to change our culture and government laws. They speak as though the Great Commission is to nations as nations rather than as individuals. But Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, but then he said, baptizing them, teaching them. You don't baptize a nation You baptize individuals within those nations, and you teach the individuals who are converted and baptized. Check me on this, but I believe that the great heartbeat of the Gospels and Epistles, and I reflected it in my prayer earlier, the great heartbeat that emerges from the Gospels and the Epistles are these concerns. The eternal salvation of individuals, the elect of God given to Christ before all eternity. Seeing people converted and then the sanctification of God's people 
helping them to become more like Jesus Christ and more holy and more like God. And all this to be done in the context of the local church. Check me on this, but as I've read for 50 plus years in my New Testament, this is the heartbeat that I get emerging from it. That the great passion of our lives should be for these three things. Evangelism, sanctification, and the local church, all, of course, to the glory of God. Evangelism, the salvation of souls, as I quoted earlier, Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. Sinners are lost. He's come to sanctify his saved people. He prays in his high priestly prayer, Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And he came to do all that in the context of the local church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against. The church is the launching pad from which the evangelization of the world is to take place. And the church is the main context where the sanctification of God's people is to take place. And so if these things are not the main passions of our hearts, evangelism of lost sinners, sanctification of saved Christians, and the local church, if these are not our great fixations and passions, I believe we're out of step with the New Testament. On the one hand. On the other hand, there's another ditch to be avoided. It has been called pietism, where the only concern is individual salvation and sanctification. And yet don't we read in our New Testament that we are citizens not only of a heavenly kingdom, but we are citizens of an earthly kingdom. And as as the prophet was told to tell the people, seek the welfare of the nation where you are sent. We are called to be China's lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We are called to be salt and light in every dimension of culture where God calls us to serve. My daughter is moving to L.A. She's kind of bi-coastal. She's back and forth following where the work is. But she has been thrilled in Hollywood, California, to find a group headed up by a 70-year-old couple who have been at it for 50 years, a prayer group that meets weekly for the salvation of people in Hollywood, a sphere that many people have abandoned. But these people are getting together weekly to pray for Hollywood. And there are Christian actors and, and other people involved in that realm to bring the gospel to Hollywood. And in a book I read recently, there was an interesting insight which said that the laws of our nation can have a profound effect on individual salvation. And he explains, in order to get converted, you need to be convicted that you're a sinner and you need to repent, right? The law of God, as Spurgeon said, the needle of the law precedes the scarlet thread of the gospel. The law has got to do its work. I am a lawbreaker under the curse of God, and I need the grace of God. And he was saying how the laws of society can have an effect on this. Fifty years ago, homosexuality was criminal behavior. What would that do in the psyche of someone who has that orientation? It would help them to think, you know, this is wrong. This is sin. This is perversion. I need forgiveness. Society even is telling me, the laws of society are telling me this is wrong, and I I need 
need deliverance from this, and I need salvation, which is in the grace of God in Christ. But try today to tell a homosexual that he's guilty. He's got all of society behind him, all the laws of society behind him. We've just come away from Pride Month, where we are glorying in sexual perversion. And he's all likely to turn around saying, no, you've got the problem. You're the hater. You're the bigot. You're the homophobe. You've got the problem, not I, because society is, is salving his conscience into thinking I'm okay. And so he makes a good point that the more righteous the laws of society, the more they approximate the law of God, the more they're going to work on the consciences of people and fill them with guilt and a sense of need for the grace of God in Christ. That makes sense? It did to me. Finally, and very briefly, having seen the occasions of our disobedience, what is the manner of our disobedience? Our overarching duty to human government is to submit be subordinate to, and therefore we must be clear that disobedience to government should not involve us in revolt or rebellion. And one of the ways that we show that our continued, our continued subordination to government, even on occasions of disobedience, is the manner in which we disobey. And what we see in the scriptures, Old and New Testament, when people of God had to disobey the authorities they nevertheless did so respectfully. I'm struck by the fact that in Daniel 3.17, the three friends of Daniel, though defying the king's idolatrous demand, yet they call the king by his title. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Still gives him his title. He's about to throw us into a furnace for idolatrous reasons, but... He's the king. In Daniel 1, remember, the king wanted to impose a diet upon Daniel, which would have been contrary to the dietary laws of his Jewish faith. And what does he say? No way, pagan king, am I going to submit to that? He, he offers a, a, an alternative. Look, let us eat vegetables and water and try us out to see if we're not more healthy than the rest of the guys at the end. He, he's not just in the face of the king defying, looking for an opportunity. He gives a, an alternative, and it absolutely it works. And it satisfies the king, and it satisfies his, his believing conscience. And there's respect. In Daniel 6, when Daniel is threatened with the lion's den, could have resulted in his gruesome death had not God intervened. But he still responds with respect toward the king. He doesn't come at the king with a curled lip and sneering tone, calling him a pagan swine. He submits. Likewise, the apostles in Acts 4, 19 and 20, stop teaching in this name, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you or to God, you be the judge. We cannot help but speak the things that we have seen and heard. And so even when we disobey, we disobey, we disobey respectfully. And then finally, we must accept punishment submissively. It's okay to run and hide from authorities, to flee, but when we're captured or arrested, what do we see? We see the people of God submitting the punishment that is given to them. The three men acquiesce peacefully to the fiery furnace. 
There's no defiance. Daniel does not protest being thrown into the lion's den. And likewise with the apostles, do to us what you must, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you or to God, you be the judge. But we're not going to obey you. We're going to obey Christ. But they submit. And then when they're later arrested again, and this time they're beaten, we read in Acts 5.40, they took this his advice and let's see. So they went on their way from their presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been consounded, counted, considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And so we need to accept punishment submissively. And so brothers and sisters, may the Lord help us to have a biblically balanced approach to civil government in the days ahead. See, right now, a lot of these things are kind of theoretical and hypothetical, aren't they? They're not for others, but they may become very practical in the days ahead, no longer in the theoretical, hypothetical realm. And our highest example in this is the Lord Jesus. Coming back to where we springboarded off of Jesus' words, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. What a beautiful balance in the Lord Jesus. He wasn't a zealot. The zealots refused to pay the tax. Jesus said, no, give to Caesar his due. Pay the tax. He was hupotasso to the God. He was hupotasso to his parents. Jesus was submissive to his parents as a young boy. And he was submissive to the government to a point. But when the government, as evidenced by the insignia on the denarius, claiming semi-divinity, when the government demanded worship, Jesus drew the line and said, no, give to Caesar what is due Caesar, but to God what is due God's, and worship is due to God alone. And so Jesus is our perfect example of submission and godly disobedience. And in line with the supreme authority of God and his Son, I once again call on any of you who have not bowed your heart to the saviorship and lordship of Jesus to do so. And God calls you to repent not merely of particular sins, but he calls you to repent of a whole lifestyle. Because our whole life is a life of sinful independence and turning our back on God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. If you're to come to God, you need to not only repent of particular sins that you're aware of, but you need to repent and turn from a, a lifestyle of independence from God. You need to repent of that. Your sinfulness, your sinful nature, and your particular sins, and turn to Jesus who promises full and free forgiveness instantaneously of all of your sins. And I urge you, unbelieving friend, to do so now, today, because you don't know if you will have tomorrow. Let's pray and we'll sing a final hymn. Oh, Lord, we need wisdom to understand what your word teaches, when we are to submit, when and how we are to disobey, and we need grace in our hearts, Lord, to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We thank you that you are not only our pattern and example, Lord Jesus, but you live in us by your spirit. And you can give us the grace to live and act even as you did. And we plead for it in your name.